Hello and welcome everyone to this UCL Lunch Hour Lecture entitled Towards Inclusion, Interventions to Address Intellectual Disability Stigma. And today's lecture has been organised on this date to highlight International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which is tomorrow, the 3rd of December. And this day aims to promote an understanding of disability issues and to mobilise support for the dignity, rights and well-being of people with disabilities. So before I introduce our speakers today, um, I just wanted to let you know that we'll have some time at the end of the lecture, once we've heard from all three speakers, for questions. And these can be submitted by going to Slido and entering the event code UCL Inclusion. So now I'd like to welcome our three speakers today. So Katrina Sewell is Professor of Clinical Psychology and Stigma Studies and is Director of the UCL Unit of Stigma Research. And Katrina's research is focused on stigma associated with disability and mental health problems, with a particular focus on the development and evaluation of interventions aimed at reducing the negative stereotypes, prejudice and discrimination faced by people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And Katrina is an expert advisor to national and international organisations in the disability field and is also research consultant on a, uh, a United Nations project aimed at reducing the stigma experienced by women and girls with disabilities globally. Our second speaker is Lisa Richardson, and Lisa is a research fellow with the UCL Unit of Stigma Research and the study manager for an NIHR funded study focused on evaluating the Standing Up For Myself or STORM programme, which is a psychosocial intervention aimed at enabling people with intellectual disability to manage and resist stigma. And Lisa's passion is about co-production and research with people with intellectual disabilities and also worked at the University of Canterbury in leading um, a programme on public engagement there. And last but definitely not least, we have Harry Roche, who's a self-advocate, who's currently on secondment from the Royal Mencap Society to Inclusion International, which is a network for people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And Harry leads the Empower Us programme, which works to develop a way for self-advocates around the world to connect with each other and share ideas for championing rights. So thank you to all three of you um, for delivering this lecture today, which I'm really, really looking forward to. So over to you, um, Katrina, if you want to get started. Thank you very much indeed for the introduction and thank you very much to UCL for inviting us on this very important day. As, as Laura said, tomorrow is International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Um, before I kick off, I just want to say it's common to have, I think, one speaker, usually a, a professor, um, deliver the lunch hour lecture. You get three for the price of one today, and that is very intentional. We also not only want to speak from three different perspectives, but also really model how we do research in the disability field and in relation to stigma. None of us are an island. We work very much as a team. Um, Self-advocates, experts by experience are absolutely crucial and central to the way we work. And we always aim to work very, very closely together from, from the outset of our project. And, and secondly, Lisa, as Laura is saying, is passionate um, about user engagement, about working in partnership with experts by experience. I also very firmly believe and grab this opportunity to model for somebody at my stage of the career, I think the absolute priority has to be to give a voice and a platform to the next generation of researchers. And I'm delighted that Lisa and Harry um, agreed to join me. So to give you an idea of what to expect in the next 45 minutes, um, I'll briefly give an overview in relation to what are we actually talking about and what, what do we mean when we think about stigma and people with intellectual disabilities. I'll present a framework for anti-stigma interventions in this field, and then Lisa will pick up and talk in more detail about a specific project she is co-leading with myself. And then Harry will talk about the central role of self-advocacy and empowerment in challenging stigma as it affects people with intellectual disabilities. 
So stigma is all around as you can barely open whichever newspaper you might be reading without somebody talking about the stigma they face. What do they actually mean? Stigma is, comes from, from the ancient Greek and is a term that refers to a mark, dot or puncture. So it's a very tangible way of branding somebody in society who's perceived in some way as having um, transgressed social rules and who is publicly marked out as undesirable. Um, the term was then picked out, um, sorry, or, or really brought into um, modern thinking and particularly sociology by Irving Goffman in the early 60s. And Goffman talked about, sorry, I'm just gonna try, apologies, I'll just move that out, okay. Um, Goffman talked about stigma as an attribute that is deeply discrediting and that reduces the bearer from a whole and usual person to a tainted, discounted one. And he also said that stigma is the process by which the reaction of others spoils normal identity. For people with disabilities, this really emphasizes that disability generally in our society and the culture is a discredited identity. And the stigmatized person's identity, the very idea of themselves and their place in society gets tainted through this process of stigma. And very often it really gets under the person's skin. Um, some other key thinkers in the field are Sir Graham Thornycroft, who is a um, psychiatrist down in, in South London. And he talks about stigma very much as a tripart problem. First of all, a problem of knowledge or what he terms ignorance, a term of a problem of attitudes as in prejudice and a problem of behavior as in discrimination. And it's this completely interlinked way of thinking about stigma as consisting of three components that I think is very helpful and is the reason why I've moved away from conceptualizing my and my group's research in terms of attitudes, but rather in terms of stigma, because we never get away from the problem of behavior, the discrimination, which is what really, really um, is what, what poses barriers to, to the lives um, of people with disabilities. Two other very important thinkers in the stigma field are Bruce Link and Joe Phelan from the United States. And they um, say stigma exists when individual attributes are labeled. Those um, labeled attributes are then evaluated negatively and labeled individuals experience status, loss and discrimination. And I think unarguably that is the case for people with disabilities who, who see all these three um, components in, in place. And therefore, I also think it's justified to talk about stigma when we talk about the experiences um, of people with disabilities. Talking about definitions, we also need to clarify what we mean when we talk of an intellectual disability, or in this country, we would more likely talk about a learning disability. So intellectual disability is internationally defined as significant limitations in three aspects. First of all, in somebody's cognitive, that is their intellectual functioning, um, their adaptive functioning, that is how they interact with the world in an everyday manner. So it includes conceptual, social and practical skills. And finally, both of those have to be of an early onset. So it's defined internationally as starting during the developmental period, either early in childhood or something that may develop as a result of, of some accident, trauma, an illness um, during, during childhood. Now, one thing I would like to say, in terms of our understanding of the life's experiences and particular um, experience of stigma, as they affect people with intellectual disabilities globally, 80% of people with disabilities live in low and middle income countries. So those are on my sort of sketched out map, the green parts of the world broadly. Often in low and middle income countries, there are very few resources and supports outside of the family to people with disabilities. And intellectual disability in many places is particularly poorly understood because it's not necessarily visible and there may not be tangible markers and the people and members of the local community may not quite understand um, what may be going on for the person. 
Having said that, so if you look at the green parts of the world, I'll now show you where intellectual disability researchers are located. Oh, lo and behold, they are exactly in the other parts of the world. Yeah. So we are on the whole concentrated in higher middle income and particularly high income countries. And this is where most evidence around the lives of people with disabilities, in particular intellectual disability is generated. So we've got a massive problem in terms of the gulf between where um, researchers are located and where actually people with disabilities and intellectual disabilities in particular um, live. We're absolutely delighted. A project, a new project, um, I'm conducting jointly with my colleagues, Asil Hamid and um, Roy McConkey, Asil from UCL and Roy from um, the University of Ulster, which we'll be launching tomorrow, focuses on um, discrimination and stigma experienced by women and girls with disabilities globally. And the four pilot countries which the United Nations have chosen are most certainly not high income places, but rather um, areas affected by low incomes, deprivation, but also histories of conflict. And we'll be piloting our work in Samoa, Pakistan, Palestine, and Moldova. So as I say, if you could keep an eye on, if you're on Twitter, keep an eye on my Twitter feed and also our research group at Nucleus Research tomorrow when we'll be jointly with the UN launching this very, very exciting new project. Okay. So talking about intellectual disability as a discredited and stigmatized attribute, what does this actually mean um, for people intellectual disabilities? They very often find the fact that they may have difficulties negotiating the world in particular areas is taken by others to mean that they're incompetent across all areas of life. And there's a lack of recognition of the many strength resources and abilities people with intellectual disability have. They're very often stereotyped as dependent and childlike, have limited access to opportunities other people take for granted, very limited access to positive and aspirational role models. You can, I think, pretty much count them on one hand. And all of this provides a context in which low self-esteem, anxiety and depression, abuse and hate crimes um, flourish. And they're very much a contributor to the huge health and social inequities that people with intellectual disabilities experience. And at the bottom, there's, there's ever, ever, ever more increasing evidence to, to these processes. I've cited some references there, including from some colleagues at UCL, such as Afia Ali. Um, we conducted in 2015, a survey of experts and organizations in the disability, in particular the intellectual disability field, Originally, this was meant to be a fairly small project um, supported by UCL um, Grand Challenges, and it sort of acquired a bit of a life of its own because we we're very, very fortunate to have the support of a number of um, global disability organizations, in particular Leonard Cheshire Disability, Inclusion International, but we also had support from IACID and Special Olympics and ended up hearing from 667 respondents from 88 countries and quite a few of those located in contexts where traditionally the evidence base in this field is very, very thin. Um, we've published um, a, uh, a call for action in the Lancet Global Health in 2016 and a more comprehensive paper presenting the findings in the Journal of Policy and Practice of Intellectual Disabilities in 2020. And just to give you a very brief summary of the findings, which then lead into the remainder of this talk. So in many countries, people in the general population agree with the general principle of inclusion and the rights of people with intellectual disabilities. But having said that, intellectual disability is still a very low priority for governments around the world. And we've seen something similar for in this country, for example, in the wake of COVID, and making vaccinations um, available, even though there was really, really strong evidence. It took a huge campaign and some very, very high profile figures such as Joe Wiley joining the call for people with intellectual disabilities actually prioritized. They're just not a high enough priority both in this country and, and elsewhere. Um, our second key finding in many parts of the world, intellectual disability stigma is a huge concern for those affected and their families and a real barrier to inclusion and quality of life, but there is not enough action. And we found a very stark, apparent big discrepancy 
regarding where such stigma is at its most intense, which is very often in low-income countries, and where initiative to, initiatives to challenge such stigma are underway. And finally, how inclusion is implemented or very often not implemented is a concern absolutely everywhere, regardless of the income level and development of a given country. To bring some of this to life, this is not some abstract um, background, just some, some real life examples. This is a picture of um, Georgi Sernov outside the Bulgarian Supreme Court. He was committed to an institution at three days of, of age and then spent 28 years of his life trying to secure his, his freedom and his right to live independently within the community. He had committed no crime whatsoever, but was at the mercy of the, the state committed to a locked institution for the first 28 years of his life. He won his case, I'm delighted to say. Um, this is a piece of evidence um, from Ghana of a young man with an intellectual disability tied to a bed. I was, I'm, I'm very, very sorry. So it's, it's from, from Hungary, I do apologize. Yeah tied to a bed in a very, very low resource um, institution where there simply aren't the staff around to offer the sort of support and care that one could expect for any, any human being. Um, this is a similar, very distressing picture from a prayer camp in Ghana, where somebody again with an intellectual disability is tied to, to a post as part of a, the pretense of, of cure for their intellectual disability. And if we think these things only happen elsewhere, here's a picture from one of the now multiple Panorama undercover programs demonstrating the abuse of somebody with an intellectual disability. This is an institution at great cost to the NHS, an assessment and treatment unit, where a young woman with an intellectual disability and autism is restrained by a carer by having a, not only a chair placed over her full body, but also having her head held down in a, in a physical grip. There have been many examples since, both in this country and other countries. So we are talking about horrendous abuses of people's human rights on a very, very regular basis. So I think there's no, there's no discussion now, and I'm absolutely delighted that the UN have committed very sizable resources to work in this area, that we need to do more to reduce intellectual disability stigma. Where should we target such efforts? Um, together with my colleague Shirley Werner, we have taken models from, from the mental health stigma field to argue that we really need to see change at four interconnected levels. And starting from the outside of, of this image, we need to see change at the institutional and structural level. So this is in terms of policies, in, in terms of legal provisions and national and international efforts. We need to see change at the interpersonal level. So this is educating both the general public, the community, how things are talked about in the media, but also specific priority groups. So this might be um, training and awareness raising for, for teachers, for health and social care professionals, for, for policymakers and um, members of the criminal justice system. We need to see change at the level of the family of the person with a disability. And finally, we need to see change at the intrapersonal. So this is the person um, affected themselves. Talking about the intrapersonal level, which um, Lisa is going to talk about in a moment, as from a psychological perspective, there are a number of key tasks that we need to support and facilitate. So first of all, we need to support people in processing the feelings that may accompany the sense of being cast by society as somehow different or even inferior, including a sense of shame, anger and powerlessness. And we published a, um, a review with um, Sofini Logoswaran as the lead author in 2019, um, looking into this in a lot more detail. We need to support people in maintaining their self-esteem in the face of extensive adversity in their lives, increase their capacity to manage stigma and support them potentially in resisting stigma if that's what they choose to do. Talking about managing stigma and, and resisting stigma, just to give you a very brief overview of what it is we're talking about. Stigma management, I think there's a very um, apt quote by Emla Tatel talking about stigma management as 
putting up walls to protect oneself from a, from a sword. And this is very much of the reality of people with disabilities on a daily basis. There is constant assault on their quality of life, their human rights, and simply their right to, to live a good life in, in the community and think of themselves as a worthy person. Stigma management and putting up these walls is required whenever and wherever stigma is present and often consists of protective efforts, including by loved ones and carers who, who try in a very well-intended fashion to cushion the person from the stigma, to manage pain and loss and to try and, and keep things hidden from them, which very often doesn't work though in everyday life. Looking at stigma resistance, it goes one step beyond this. And Emily Tittle talked about not just putting up walls, but lobbing cannonballs over the walls if necessary. And it is optional, unlike stigma management, and can transform someone from a passive to an active target of stigma. It goes beyond avoiding to, to more active acts of resistance. And we've asked in our work whether this is a viable target for, for psychosocial intervention. So I shall pass over to Lisa, who will talk about some of our research work. And then I'm delighted, um, finally, to have Harry, who is, I think, a real role model in, in doing this lobbing cannonballs and taking a very, very active role in resisting stigma. Over to you, Lisa. Thank you. And I'd just like to say thank you also to UCL and to Katrina for the opportunity to join uh, today's lunchtime lecture. Um, so as Katrina indicated there, I'm going to be talking about the standing up for myself um, or what we call STORM uh, for short. Um, a group-based intervention or programme for people with an intellectual disability. Um, this is designed to help um, people to make choices um, about standing up for themselves uh, when they're faced with situations where they feel they're being treated badly, unfairly or, or being disrespected. And really the intention is to help people to say no to those negative attitudes and actions, but also to feel good about themselves. Um, the STORM programme um, evolved from um, some, some work asking really whether there are programmes already out there or whether people have the opportunity to talk about what having an intellectual disability means to them, um, but also um, what it means when they are treated um, unfairly um, and how to deal with that. And actually, resoundingly, we found that people didn't have the, these opportunities, particularly not in a, in a sort of a peer support um, context with, with others who may have similar experiences. Um, and certainly there weren't already any materials out there that people could draw upon to facilitate safe conversations and planning of, of how people can manage um, the situations they find themselves in and bring about action to, to change things. Um, so the Standing Up For Myself programme was developed um, with uh, an expert panel. Uh, this involved um, research advisors who have um, uh, an intellectual disability themselves um, and also people who support them um, in some form of professional capacity, uh, as well as other research colleagues. STORM itself is a manualised um, group intervention, so by this we mean we've developed a, a manual or a book that helps guide um, a facilitator through the, the programme um, in the form of instructions uh, and activities that are provided for them. Um, we've recently developed a new digital um, version of the STORM programme, and I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, our materials for STORM are available not only in the, the manual I mentioned, but also uh, our STORM wiki, which is effectively a website um, where um, you, can, you can find the, the activities and resources needed for each session um, um, under one of the, the buttons that you can see there in the top of you, your screen. Um, STORM is delivered um, across four weeks, with each session lasting around 60 minutes, um, albeit with some time before and after added um, for groups to, to catch up um, and just check in how they're doing. 
Um, a month later, there is a follow-up session, again, just to keep, keep um, check of how people are getting on and what they might want to be doing next. Um, and the idea is for STORM to be delivered by existing group facilitators, so group leaders, um, and they receive some brief training from the team and support in planning and delivering the intervention. STORM itself draws on a number of ideas from, from psychology. Um, so firstly, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, ideas around how people can plan actions um, and solve problems. We also draw on narrative approaches from narrative therapy. So here the idea being that um, through a narrative approach, one can separate oneself from the problem. Um, so an example here is, what do I want other people to know about me? Um, so it might be something to do with um, the intellectual disability, or it might be there are many more parts to who I am, and these are the things that I would like to share and for people to know about me. Um, we also draw on liberation psychology, which suggests that before being able to take action against um, acts of oppression or, or stigma, we must first acknowledge those. So uh, enabling people to label um, their experiences and recognize that these um, negative attitudes and actions exist in the world. So that can be a very validating process for people that can then give them a stimulus to, to act and, and respond. So the STORM programme draws on first-hand accounts from people with learning disabilities. So um, throughout the programme, videos um, of people with an intellectual disability are shared with the group, which can then help to stimulate the group um, discussion and drawing on their own personal experiences. The programme encourages peer support. So whilst it's um, uh, delivered by a group leader, we very much try to... Um, bring about peer support um, between group members too. And as already indicated, um, involves some action planning. And it's, it's very structured approach across each of the sessions, as you can see there, following a similar structure um, in each session um, until we get to the fourth session where it's much more focused on action planning rather than sort of videos and discussions. Um, each part of the STORM programme focuses on some key messages um, that we hope people um, will take away. Um, so in session one, uh, this is very much around supporting people to consider what does having a learning disability mean to me and what does it mean to other people? Um, and the key message being, my learning disability is only one part of me. So we encourage that people explore other parts of who they are and things that they want to share, things they're proud of, achievements, skills, and so on. In the second session, this is where we begin to explore the range of different treatment people with um, an intellectual disability receive. Um, and that can range from very negative um, treatment, either sort of in their local community, in their own homes, um, in, in, in other settings, um, such as care settings. And really the message here being that it's not okay for people to treat me badly. And importantly, starting to recognise that this isn't something that I have to accept or put up with. We then move on to session three with the key message that I can stand up for myself when people treat me badly. So in this session, it's really about exploring the different ways one can respond to negative attitudes and actions of others. This might range from the ideas that Katrina shared around managing the stigma. So making sure um, I'm safe, how do I do that? making sure that um, I feel okay um, and that I get a chance to talk about my feelings um, through to actions that are really um, much more active around how can I create change um, and stop this happening again, um, either for myself or for other people. Um, and really a recognition then in session four that um, I can have support to, to do this. I can make a plan um, to help me stand up for myself 
and there are people I trust who will help me with this. And so in this session, it's very much around developing a personal or a group action plan. In our follow-up um, session, or what we used to refer to as our booster, um, it's about coming back together a month later and thinking through um, what can get in the way of, uh, of action plans and talking um, with the group and helping to decide what to do next and importantly, not to give up. So we have been undertaking some research um, around this STORM programme. Um, our first study back in 2017 um, allowed us to initially develop all the materials for, for the programme. And then we were able to test this out with 10 groups um, ranging from self-advocacy, day centre groups and a college based group. Um, so actually on this occasion, 68 group members um, tried out the STORM programme. And then more recently, we've had funding for a much um, different kind of, uh, of research project to find out about the feasibility of doing um, a randomised control trial. Um, so a randomised control trial being a very um, good way to do research and finding out the effectiveness of a programme. But before we could do that big piece of work, the randomised control trial, we needed to find out if it was possible to do. So that's what we were funded to do, to find out if this type of research would be possible. Of course, um, COVID-19 and associated social restrictions meant that um, people were socially isolating and groups weren't meeting in person. And so we had to really stop and pause and think about what to do next. Of course, we knew stigma hadn't gone away and our expert advisors were telling us about how this was playing out in the lives of people with intellectual disabilities. They also told us that, um, well, groups are adapting, people are adapting and they're moving online. They're joining meetings through web based platforms like Zoom, Microsoft Teams and so on. And so they strongly made a case that we um, adapted and created a digital version of Storm. And so we, we set about that in, in ensuring that all the resources and materials would be appropriate um, for delivery online. And I just wanted to give a flavour of across those two studies, some of the things that we have found. Um, in fact, what we found was that um, for um, a range of different people in, in different ways, it had enhanced their ability to, to resist stigma. So they recognised what was going on when they were treated badly and were starting to find ways to create change and to manage their situations. Um, they also had uh, pers more personal awareness around disability personal learning around how to stand up for oneself and also growth in terms of confidence to do this. Um, they had improved connections with others both inside and outside of their groups and also it drove many people to um, advocacy initiatives and, and taking part in, in those. It also gave people an opportunity to talk about and manage difficult emotions that they didn't necessarily have a space to do, um, that they could share this and that that was okay. And there's a few quotes here that we've included um, from um, some of the individuals who've taken part. And just to finish off, um, some conclusions from our work. We've seen that it is possible to deliver the STORM programme to groups both in person and digitally on web-based meetings. People have found the intervention or the programme to be acceptable, albeit we will be making some further minor amendments. The accounts that people have given of taking part in STORM um, shows that it can enhance awareness, confidence and skills for stigma resistance. It can help people feel good about themselves, understand that they matter in the world and to um, develop the ability to stand up for themselves. We've also seen um, through the pandemic and through the work that we've done that digital interventions for people with intellectual disabilities are possible. Um, it just requires the right support, planning and resources. And so, you know, we really need to, ca you know, to catalyze on, 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 on this learning and really 
break down some, some more of the barriers that people have to accessing technology um, and to, to, you know, to developing the skills they need to use that technology. There are also opportunities we feel for future research. We do need more evidence around the effectiveness of STORM um, in relation to mental well-being, how people respond to stigma, their sense of power and self-esteem. We also think that um, STORM could be um, adapted for delivery in diverse cultural settings. So um, countries in the global south where disability stigma is much more intense, um, could actually benefit from, from a programme like STORM. And so finding ways to share um, our resources will be really important um, for um, local groups to be able to perhaps take these on and adapt STORM. And you can find out more about the STORM programme and all of our work um, on our website link here. Um, so that's, um, that's it from me. And I'll now hold on, hand on to Harry Roche, um, who incidentally works very closely with us on the STORM programme. Uh, Harry, over to you. Thank you, Lisa. Um, okay. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to join today to um, this lunchtime um, lecture. And I'm looking forward just to sharing um, um, about um, the global advocacy movement. So, um, okay, an introduction about me. So hello again, my name is Harry and I'm the Inclusion Support Officer at Inclusion International. Inclusion International are a global network of people with intellectual disabilities and their families. We advocate for their human rights around the world and we want a world where people with an intellectual disability are having their rights respected. Okay, what is advocacy? Um, advocacy means um, taking actions for our rights to work and to be included in our community. We have the right to speak up about the issues that affect us and advocating can make change happen. If we do not speak up and advocate for our rights, we cannot expect others to understand what we want and need. We have the right to take action, use personal power and come together. And self-advocacy means actions for our rights and others. Global advocacy means taking action. So as we work together, we come together in groups. We support one another. We share our knowledge and experiences. And we work together on the big issues that um, are important to us. Um, for personal power. Um, so, oh, oh, next. Oh, sorry, I need to go on to the next slide. <laughs> So um, we have our, we have, for, for personal power, we also have our rights. We speak up for ourselves. We say what we think and feel, and we ask for support we need, and we make decisions about our lives. Um, now we take action. So self-advocates for our rights and our work for change to happen. We take action on inclusion for ourselves and others. Because we have our voice um, and hold our opinions, we have the right to speak up about the issues that affect us. Advocating can make changes happen. If we do not speak up and advocate for our rights, we cannot expect others and we want people to understand what our needs are. And advocacy is so, so important to us and protecting our rights. We want people to understand what we need and um, advocacy helps us build a voice and a stronger network. Now, what is Empower Us? Empower Us is a global program of Inclusion International. Empower Us helps us to develop self-advocate leaders and self-advocacy movements around the world. 
This work is led by people with intellectual disabilities who are self-advocates. We advocate and we, sorry, we advise and support on self-advocacy and inclusion to inclusion international members. We do this through training and sharing resources and bringing people together to share knowledge and experiences. Now, what is the United Nations? The United Nations is an international organization of countries all over the world. The UN are made up with 193 countries that work together to make the world a better place for everyone. They protect our human rights and making sure we live in a peace and protective environment. The United Nations works all over the world, but lots of the United Nations meetings are held at the headquarters in New York, in the United States of America, or Geneva, Switzerland. What is a convention? A convention is a United Nations agreement Countries who sign up to a convention to give more protection to people who are often treated badly. The Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Um, the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities protect the rights of persons with, with, with disabilities. It says what countries should be doing to make sure that all people with disabilities have the same rights as everyone else. And who is um, the Convention of the Rights of People with Disability for? The CRPD is to protect all people with disabilities. People with disabilities are people who face barriers in society that prevent them from participating on an equal basis with other people. This includes people who have physical disabilities, for example, people who may use wheelchairs, people who have mental health dis dis disabilities or also have an intellectual disabilities, for example, people with Down syndrome or people who need more support to learn. Sensory disabilities, for example, people who are, are blind, Okay, here is a video um, by Inclusion Europe explaining what the CRPD is. Don't think we have time now, but if you want to watch it in your own time later, go on, just type in um, Inclusion Europe and the CRPD of people with disabilities and it will come up and it will be only about a couple of minutes to watch. So I would let you watch that later on. Okay, um, thank you so much. Do you have any questions? Brilliant. Thank you so much um, to all three of you for such a wonderful set of talks. It was really brilliant to hear about work that's addressing stigma at a really global level but also um, some interventions that have a really positive and practical impact on people's day-to-day -day lives and also hearing about the importance of self-advocacy as well and how much um, of a value lived experience can have so thank you so much um, for that um, we now have some time for some questions for our speakers. Um, if anyone who's watching today would like to post a question, you can go to the website Slido um, and enter the event code hashtag UCL inclusion and you can post some questions. But we have had um, some questions come in. Um, so one of the questions we've had is about how the projects that you spoke about today tackle internalized stigma and how the neurodiversity movement or whether the neurodiversity movement could be applied to this approach. So I don't know if one of you wants to kind of define what internalized stigma is and if any of you have any reflections on that. Yeah. Katrina? Could I speak to that one first? So, so generally, as psychologists, we think of internalized stigma, also the, the word self-stigma. If somebody 
is aware of, of negative stereotypes and stigmatizing beliefs, accepts those as, as genuine and valid, and applies them to themselves with the potential that they that they cause harm. Yeah. So as somebody with a disability, I, I talked earlier about a stereotype that people with intellectual disabilities are incompetent across all areas of life rather than they may struggle with um, literacy skills, they may struggle with problem solving around around daily tasks. So there might be an idea about um, we are we can't do anything because this is the story we've been told over and over and over in by our families in, in school settings and so on. Now if I personally if I internalize that or apply that belief to myself it means I may stop trying altogether. Pat Corrigan, one of the leading stigma researchers in the world, talks about the why try effect, and there's recent evidence to, to support this. People simply give up. They give up, they give up hope, they give up self-belief, and they give up trying and ultimately confirm all these negative stereotypes that people can't can't do things. Yeah. Um, what we do in the in the work, in particular the, the Storm Project, which Lisa talked about, is to try and challenge those beliefs, but unlike some prior psychological intervention, they've said, okay, let's use psychological methods and maybe meet for six sessions or 10 sessions as a group and really think about um, those processes and the pain to actually say, well, hang on, let's ask the question, how do you actually want to see yourself? So let's not accept that you will necessarily have applied those negative ideas to yourself, but rather let's examine them and let's give you the choice. Let's put you in the driving seat of deciding how you how you position yourself in in relation to to those negative stereotypes and and we will then support you if you decide you want to position yourself differently or you want to tell a more nuanced um, story about yourself one that isn't black and, and white but that is is gray yeah i hope i've answered all parts of that question brilliant thank you i think the second part was about whether um your approach could be applied to the neurodiversity movement. So presumably whether this would extend beyond intellectual disability. And actually that's some work that's ongoing at the moment. Yeah, there's some, there's some very interesting debates. And I imagine Laura as, a, as an expert on autism in particular, and, and Harry might well have thoughts on that. Um, there's some, I think, quite forceful debates raging within the intellectual disability field, the, the old coinage label, label jars not people is really really powerful and the idea that people are people first so their disability is very very much second they want to be seen primarily as a person with lots of, with all the facets of skills interests wishes hopes dreams that everybody else has within the autism community as one sub community within the neurodiversity field in particular people say talk about autistic people, or, or that is a, a very powerful argument. Um, our autism or our, our symptoms of autism, but I think it's more the argument our autism, really defines who we are and is central to, to our, our experience of the world. So, and, and, and they're quite powerful debates um, raging about the language we use and what it signifies, because language is hugely important in, in, in telling a story and position ourselves in the world. I wonder whether whether Harry or Laura in particular might quickly want to add something to to those very different um, positions on neurodiversity and how people um, view themselves and present themselves to the world. Thanks, Katrina. I think um, when people want to present themselves to the world, they want to be seen as people like first and not be seen like as the disability as um second that they, that they might have we might have um a disability but we are still people we have feelings we what we want to live an ordinary life we look we like the same things we have hobbies interests we have rights we have the right to exercise our rights we have the rights to um feel like included in our societies. I think the problem is, I think people that don't have a disability always see, um, they think, um, 
I think they, they think they know what's best for us. But really, in reality is we are all human beings. We're all individuals. We all like to be seen as um, individuals before um, the disabilities. It's just um, it's just it's, it's just we want to end these negative attitudes and we want to see more people having more a positive attitude towards people with intellectual disabilities and seeing us as the individuals. We are individuals at the end of the day. We are not um, labels or just um, to just say intellectual disability. We are a human with a name, living a life, how we want to choose. It's just we want to see more um, positive attitudes from society and us having the right to engage in the community and not locking people up because of their disabilities because we're not doing any harm in society. It's just, it's not nice finding people with intellectual disabilities being locked in institutions. It's just, um, they, 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 they should be in the community in the first place because um, they're not doing any harm. They're not dangerous. They are just individuals that want to enjoy life. And it's, and, and it's abuse of human rights when um, governments take those rights away without, um, without good reason because they are not good reasons at all they're very very bad reasons thank you harry i think that's a really um important and powerful message um got lots of questions coming so apologies to anyone um whose question i don't get to um the next project we've got a comment in saying thank you so much for this really important work and um, but this is someone who works in a school and would be very interested and um, to see the resources and thinks they'll be really great to be applied in those settings and they've asked if you know of any work where schools are using this at the moment yeah so i think that's it sounds like that sort of is, is talking about um some of the work we've been doing around the standing up for myself program um and indeed you know our our intention is that um we we make our resources freely available for groups to to use um we're not at that point yet because we haven't done this bigger piece of research to look at effectiveness and also to be confident that it's um safe um and doesn't have any sort of adverse effects on people taking part so once we have that and we can be confident about um that we can share our resources I would say, however, that if this person is particularly interested in, in finding out more, we'd be quite happy to have a conversation. Um, so if you if you look up UCLUS, um, um, UCL Unit for Stigma Research, you'll find out how to get in touch with us. And we can certainly have a conversation. Um, and actually, during both parts of our pilot, we, we have had engagement with a, a college setting um, and delivering the storm intervention with, with their students. Um, and actually what, what we found really helpful for them taking part was for them to really um, think through how um, components of the STORM programme actually mapped to um, their educational um, programmes and requirements um, particularly around PSHE programs. Um, so th there has been some work already um, around that and how, how that maps over. Um, and I think it's certainly something that we found is, is feasible for, for educational settings to deliver. At the moment, the program is designed for, for people aged 16 and above. So there is that to consider, um, albeit maybe there's future work and collaborations to be had around um, developing a similar program for a slightly younger group. Fantastic, thank you, Lisa. And actually something that you touched upon in your answer was around ethics. And someone's posted a question, first of all, saying thank you to all three of you for such a brilliant session and for presenting this work, with, which is very much needed. Um, they've added that they'd be really interested to know a bit about the ethics of the STORM projects and particularly whether there was a protocol that you followed for informed consent from the participants. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we have to um, apply for ethical approval to, to um, undertake the study. And obviously the intervention itself relies on people coming together, being able to process um, information from the videos and being able to respond and join in conversations. And for, for that reason, um, the STORM programme at the moment is particularly targeted at people with a mild or moderate intellectual disability. Um, so, you know, for, for the research process, we, ha we have to get informed consent for people to take part in that. We start from the position of assuming that people have the capacity to give consent. We provide um, information about the project, what it means to take part, what they'll be expected to do, what some of the positives might be, but also what some of the negatives might be around taking part. And then people have a support to, to think through their own decision around taking part in the programme, whether that's something they want to do or not. Um, we then go through the process of consent and through that assess um, and ensure that there was capacity to give consent, that people were able to understand the information retain the information and then communicate a decision about taking part. So that's very much within the research process, very key to what we do. And I guess in terms of the ethics of your work as well, that one of the main ways that you enhance this is by involving um, and working with self-advocates like Harry. And actually, Harry, I'd love to know a little bit about how you've been working with Katrina and Lisa on their projects. Yeah, I was first identified by Katrina in 2016 at a conference in um, Florida. And what happened was I attended um, one of her workshops alongside um, one of the MENCAP executive directors um, at the time. And there was also a self-advocate I used to work closely with, Sarah Picard. They were all three of them were running um, a workshop and as I was speaking at one of Katrina's, uh, Sarah's and the executive director of um, strategy and influence at the time at MENCAP, um, I, I was speaking. And then the next day at break, Katrina came and asked me if I want to join some of her projects at UCL. And, and I said, yes. And then from there, we have worked together going to different universities. We've came to, I've went to, I've went, been to the UCL many times to um, deliver um, STORM projects, becoming a STORM advisory member and working with self-advocates from um, the Elfrida Society to come up with ideas and thinking about new ways of like working um, with the advisory group. So it was kind of like from from doing like research on negative attitudes towards, my, towards myself and other self-advocates. And then what happened from there is um, I've actually um, spoke to self-advocates um, at UCL projects, coordinating um, some research just to find out um, how Storm doing, what could be good about Storm, what wasn't good about um, the Storm project and what what they like kind of like enjoyed about it because we're trying to get like their feedback and what what they are thinking thank you harry katrina did you have anything to add there just two points i just wanted to a apologize to everybody who's for felt the momentary pain of having their roles massively reduced i was half hoping harry might not mention that we, that we met in, in Florida of all places. We're both based in the southeast of England. Those were the wonderful days when one was actually able to go somewhere. And yes, I am having a very close look on my air miles and, and being extremely cautious about, about um, future, future conferences. Um, just to say, I think maybe a bit differently to some colleagues, quite a few of our co-researching relationships have been built quite organically. So, the other three self-advocates who've been working with us very closely on the STORM project, Celia, Adrian and Paul, we, we've known for quite a few years because they've been get engaged with us in, in UCL teaching and we've met them, two of them live in the same part of London as I do and are very, very engaged in, in self-advocacy. So we haven't just recruited people for specific projects necessarily, but we've actually really worked with organic Relations. And I think in many ways, we, I think we see one another much more as sort of friendly colleagues rather, rather than people who just get recruited in and perhaps a little bit more as might happen in some projects, 
it could be a bit of a box ticking exercise of, of working together and then we say goodbye and then we prove the different people. And I think there is something quite different about the flavor of those relationships. So we all have each other's phone numbers. I can quickly WhatsApp Harry if I want to ask him something. I can, I can get in touch or drive around the corner if I need to talk to Celia and Adrian in person during the course of the pandemic. I think that makes for quite a different relationship and, and also serves to address huge power differences between researchers and the people who they work in partnership with. Thank you, Katrina. Um, I can't believe that we're at um, two o'clock already. And that brings us towards the end of our session today. Um, huge apologies to anyone whose questions we didn't get round um, to answering. But I just want to say a big thank you um, to our three speakers today, Katrina, Lisa and Harry. Um, such brilliant talks and a great discussion. And I'm so pleased to have had the opportunity to chair this lecture today and to learn from you all and to hear about all the brilliant work you're doing. So thank you so, so much. Um, do look out for the next lunch hour lecture, which will take place on Tuesday, the 7th of December. And this is on gender and climate change, exploring why women are more at risk from global heating. And that will take place from 1 to 2 p.m. UK time. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>